Hi, Perspectivists. Welcome to another episode of Perspectivity. In this episode, we unpack the life story of Jay. Jay Stilipek, one of the most amazing characters, and I say characters because Jay helps people, students in particular, create characters, create stories, enhance their creativity through the use of building worlds. And you're going to learn all about that. You're going to learn about how Jay went into the military, the Navy, became a drill sergeant, someone who actually helped train people in the Navy. They did a great job at it, became a broadcaster, and used that skill of trying to communicate and bring new knowledge to people to benefit the military and then to build a really cool career as a part of that. Jay also talks about navigating gender dysphoria and navigating a transition from a a born presenting male person to someone who now um, identifies differently, someone who is also asexual as well. And we explore the themes of what it's like to grow up without having you know, these interests or these motivations that a lot of people tend to have or that are perceived as normal. In this conversation, I invite you to just be open-minded and listen to what we have to learn from Jay here. This story can pose tons of great questions. Definitely, after this story, jump into the community let's talk about it. For some of you, these topics are very easy to explore. For others, you might have felt pain around this because people have told you what to believe. The goal here is to be curious, to learn, try to grow in that pursuit. Welcome to the story of Jay. Stay curious. Jay? Hi. Would you mind uh, just saying your full name? Great for us. Well, I am James J. Stilipek. And uh, I am an entrepreneur, I'm an Alaskan, I'm a cosplayer, I'm a Navy veteran, and I'm a teacher. Wow. It's a lot of identities. Yes. (laughs) I guess I'd ask you, when you think of, I like to ask some fun questions to kind of get rolling in. When you think of, when you think of your life, what is the color? The color of my life. the, The color that aligns with your life the most at this point in time. The color of my life at this point in time is definitely purple because early on I always liked blue and I always liked red. Those are like my two colors. If people ever ask me, it's like, I can't decide. It's, it's, it's blue and red. And uh, then I said, why have two? <laughs> wow. That's really cool. It sounds like a theme of integration, a season mm-hmm. of integration. That's wonderful. Okay. So one of the ways we'll play with the conversation space is to think about your story, Mm -hmm. your life as a story on a timeline. Mm -hmm. And so I want to kind of ask us to draw back. I want to ask you, what's your earliest memory in life? I've thought about this before. My earliest memory that I can cohesively guarantee say that I have it as opposed to seeing a picture of myself when I was really young or a story that other people told me is of tying my shoes for the first time. I was in my parents' first house, which was a single wide trailer on a property that was owned by my grandparents in Alaska. And I just remember my mom and dad and sister were all there as I made the loop and made the final knot and they all cheered. And I would say I was, I had to be four uh, when that happened because we moved out of that house when I was five or six. Wow. What do you think, so if you had to title that first chapter of your life, mm-hmm. even before the memory, but kind of coming into that memory, what would you title that chapter and, and why would you chat, title it, what you, whatever comes to mind right now? 
My early childhood, I would definitely have to title it something like, just hold on. You know, good things are yet to come. Something like that. Because I, I think most kids don't know what they have until they become adults. They don't know how much other people are taking care of them, looking out for them. Uh, kids are all ego. You know, they're all just like, no, they're, they're all id. Kids are all id. They just want what they want and they want it now and they don't care about other people's feelings. And it's not until you're a teenager or even a young adult that you look back and go, oh man, I was such a jerk to my mother or my sister or my father. Uh, I, Christmas list, I want all these toys. And you only get like a Hot Wheels set and a pair of socks. And you're just kind of like, oh, they don't love me. No, they have other bigger issues to worry about than, than uh, your wants and desires. When you think about that, so you say good things are yet to come. Mm. What do you think? It's, it's interesting, like pulling back, you're looking at, you know, little Jay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. it's good things are yet to come. We're reading that story. What, what do you think little Jay was thinking? Like what was not, had not come yet? Why, why did there need to be good to come? Why did you need to hold on? Well, I grew up in North Pole, Alaska. It's a very small town in the middle of Alaska near Fairbanks, which is only the second largest city in the entire state. And it's very isolated. There's not another metropolitan space for another 300 miles. So it's a small town, but a medium-sized city in a county the size of New Jersey. And it's everybody versus nature because you have very long winters. I always thought winter started in October because that's when the snow would come and that's when the temperatures would drop. And then it carried on until April or May when all the snow finally melted. And spring and fall were literally one week because there's only two types of trees, the evergreen trees, like spruce trees, and the birch trees. And when you only have one type of tree, they all change color on the same weekend and all lose their leaves the following weekend. So fall and spring were very short comparatively. Now summers were great because the sun was up all the time. We were so far north that sun only set for like two hours and it just come right back up. So no street lamps, no stars. But then inversely in the wintertime, sun was down all the time. If you didn't go to lunch, you didn't see the sun. Uh, but then conversely, you could always see the northern lights, which were directly overhead every night. So I didn't need drugs. <laughs> I had lights in the sky whenever I wanted them. But as far as good things were yet to come, I think I was just like just trying to survive. You know, I was just trying to get through those early years. Um, luckily, I was I had good parents, took care of me. Uh, I had a sister who looked out for me. And I was above average. I got into gifted and talented uh, when I was in fifth grade. And that carried over into middle school. And, um, but then I kind of got lazy. I was like, oh, school's easy. So I'll just sit at the back of class and do my creative writing and role-playing games and stuff like that. And I'll still pass the test. Um, and I just wish I could go back and focus a little bit more, hmm. you know, just, you know, you could have done more with that brain kiddo. Not that I'm unhappy with my life. I, I like where I am now and I wouldn't have got here if it weren't for that, uh, laziness, so to speak. Wow. So that was really interesting where you hit that transition point. It's like, first of all, that theme of like us versus nature mm -hmm. that really caught my eye mm -hmm. so the family always had a goal of like you have an immediate goal of protecting yourself and being able to survive these long winters mm -hmm. 
What do you think that did for your family as a whole? I think that the everyone versus nature helped my family, but also helped the community because growing up in a small town, everybody knows everybody. And if you don't know the person behind the counter at the bank, you go to school with their son or you had the same teacher in high school or uh, like this is the same school, same town that my mother and father went to high school in and my grandparents lived there and my uncle and my aunt. And when it comes to the society, when there's negative 10 degrees outside and your car breaks down on the side of the road, everybody's going to stop and help you. So that's what I mean. Everybody looks out for each other. You know, there is no, oh, you know, not going to stop for that person. You know, they, it's their own fault that they, that their car broke down. No, it's like you stop, you check on your fellow man. And as far as my family, we just took care of each other. Um, my parents divorced when I was about nine or 10 years old and dad stayed in town. You know, we still saw him but officially lived with mom and my sister. My sister was four years older than me, so she was kind of like that. Nobody beats up my little brother but me. Um, and she protected me. You know, I, uh, I was in a fight once, and my students have told me that it wasn't actually a fight. I was sucker punched. I used to joke, this was one fight, one punch, one, you know, one punch I lost. And they're like, no, if you didn't hit back, it's not a fight. And I, I admit it, it was my own fault. I was picking on a kid on the bus. I was, I was being a brat. I wasn't picking on him. I was just like, hey, buddy, what you doing? How you doing? Hey, what are you going to do this weekend? I just was, and he was in a mood, right? And I remember that now, that he just did not want to talk to anybody. And I just kept bugging him. And he just whipped around and popped me. Next thing I knew, my sister was standing over me because she was still in high school and I was in the middle school. So the, middle, the bus would pick us up at middle school and then go get the high schoolers. But she was driving at that time, so somebody had gone and got her, and she had come and got me and drove us home. So she was always there to look out for me. And because you spend so much time in the wintertime at home, like you, you can't, it's not people like, oh, Alaska must be lots of skiing and winter sports. Yeah, in the higher temperatures, if it's just like 10 degrees or 20 degrees, sure, skiing and snowboarding and snow machining is great. But once you get down to negative 10, negative 20, you know, when you like can spit and it'll snap, crackle, pop, and then bounce because it's already turned to ice. Yeah, you don't go out and play in that type of weather. So you, you stay in, you play a lot of video games, you watch a lot of movies, and you talk a lot with your family and bond. So I had a very tight bond with my family. Wow. When that, so you're coming into that and you get to that next chapter. Of your life and you talked about going into middle school where do you think that next chapter kind of starts and what i i guess i'd ask what event kind of launched you into that next chapter from little jay growing up the family that's kind of there together and then all of a sudden something changes something happens mm -hmm. where would that next chapter start oh well, that was uh in middle school english i know for a fact my my teacher had us write a short story and i had an idea in my head from an episode of Amazing Stories or Tales from the Dark Side, one of those anthology Twilight Zoney type shows. I'd seen the trailer and I never saw the actual episode. And it was basically this kid who was trapped in a video game parlor and the video games came to life like big holograms and he was you know, shooting them like centipede. And to this day, I have not been able to find that show. I, I don't know what the title was. I don't know which of the shows it was and I've looked and I can't find it. But I remember watching that, episode, watching that trailer and wanting to tell that story. So. For my assignment, I wrote a little one and a half page short story about this kid who got sucked into a video game and then, you know, barely escaped. A little bit of Tron, a little bit of The Last Starfighter. 
kind of all mixed in there in the blender. And I got a good grade on it, and that was great. But then, because of my gifted and talented class, the teacher had said, you can do math or you can do creative writing. And I said, oh, I'll do creative writing. What does that mean? She goes, every day you come in and work on a short story that you will eventually submit to somewhere to be published at the end of the year. So every day I would come, and I just got an entire class period to just work on this and let my teacher look at it again and let the other students look at it and, oh, well, you should add this or you should add that. And just eventually I ended up with like an 80-page short story that was too long to be submitted where the teacher had planned on submitting it. And from that just spawned all of my creative writing. I had dozens of ideas that I was always coming up with. I still have bins of notes that go back to high school um, and just ideas that I've never solidified on. I, again, I wish I'd... I'd, I'd had a little bit more encouragement. Mom wanted me to, you know, get better grades, go to college, you know, become an engineer or, you know, something that makes a lot of money. You know, she would say things like, you know, you know how much writers make? I'm like, no, but who cares? Isn't it about doing something that you love? So, and it was the creative writing that kind of like started to broaden my horizons, you know, got me reading more, reading more you know, reading different types of science fiction. And of course I was a big Star Trek fan and a Star Wars fan and, you know, Last Starfighter and Back to the Future and, you know, back Ghostbusters and just like, you know, all these types of things that I was taking in in the 80s and 90s. And um, that also started my gender transition because at the same time I became, I got into cross-dressing. Wow. When you say so... You're creative. It's like, it sounded to me like this one assignment unlocked. It's like all that creation, like that creator inside you was ready. Mm-hmm. And it was the first creation that made it real. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And I want to say I still have that story. I have a printout of it somewhere. I know I have a printout of my longer story because my sister found a copy that I'd sent to her when she was living in Italy with her first husband. And she still had it, and she gave it back to me and said, here's, here's that copy of the story that you'd sent me. I was like, wow, now the original page-and-a-half story, I've seen it. It's probably in one of these boxes over here. I just, you know, haven't, like, framed it or anything like that, and I probably should. Wow. But, yeah, it, it, gave me the, it gave me permission to be a writer. Uh, I don't remember who said it. It wasn't my teacher. It was somebody said that nobody needs permission to be a writer. If, you're, if you write things, if you want to be a writer, you're a writer. You, there's no test you have to pass. There's no qualification you have to get. There's no certificate. There's no degree. If you want to be a writer, you are. Wow. I, I want to double click on that. At what age do you feel like you started? What was that age where you started? You said you started with cross-dressing. Can so, you walk us through that experience? Sure. So I was in middle school, and I wanted geography B. And that led to this. Now you're asking yourself, how does a geography be lead to a gender transition? Well, here's the silly part. I won the geography B for my school. And then I went to the state level and we did it via phone teleconference, which at the time was kind of a new idea, being on the phone with multiple people at the same time all over the state. And I didn't win the state level, but one of my prizes for participating was an inflatable globe that was about the size of a basketball. And I don't know why, but shortly thereafter, I started putting it like up under my shirt as like a pregnant belly. And then I was like, hmm, well, I need something up here. So a friend 
gave me an old bra that she wasn't using anymore. And I put some socks in there and I had the belly and the thing. And then I, when mom and my sister were out, I would try on their outfits and it just evolved, you know, to water balloons and a big water balloon. And I liked just hanging out, playing video games and watching TV and even sleeping while wearing this getup. It made me comfortable. It made me feel warm. And I never did my hair. I never wore wigs. I never did makeup. And if I could go back in time, I'd say to younger Jay, learn how to do makeup, learn how to style your hair because <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to help you in the future. But that just kind of like evolved over time and I didn't know what it meant. In retrospect, I've learned that I'm what's called asexual or gray sexual, which means I don't have a sex drive. I never had a horny teenager phase. You know, I knew where my dad's pornos were. Yeah. You know, I was more busy looking at the cover of the Playboy and finding the hidden Playboy bunny symbol that was like in her hair, or maybe it was a necklace she was wearing or a tattoo on her wrist or something like that. There was always a little hidden Playboy bunny symbol somewhere on the cover. And I was more interested in that than looking at the naked women. I used to look at magazines of uh, like uh, Fredericks of Hollywood magazines with lingerie and swimsuits and stuff like that. And I used to think I was looking at the women. Oh, these women are beautiful. I want to be with them. I was looking at the clothes. I was looking at their bodies. I was envious of how they looked and I wanted to look that way as well. But with the asexual thing, I'm not driven by any kind of carnal urges. I only had a couple of girlfriends in high school and one of them, I got up the nerve and I asked her, can we date? And she said, sure. And for like a, three weeks, we would hold hands in the hallway and we'd meet each other at lunch. And you know, we'd meet at the beginning of the day and give her a little peck on the cheek. And that was it. We never went on a date. I never went over to her house. I never made a move. So after three weeks, she comes in one day and she's like, good morning. Um, we got to talk. I'm like, what's up? She's like, I, th I think we should break up. I was like, okay, well, have a good day. I gave her a little peck on the head and started to walk away. And she's like, that's it? I'm like, what? She's like, my last boyfriend, when I broke up with him, he threw me over his shoulder and paddled my ass. I'm like, if that's what you're into. <laughs> Um, I, I said that, that I don't remember what I said after that, but it was kind of like, she realized, oh, Jay's a nice guy. Well, James at the time, Jay is a more recent nickname, but she's like, oh, James is just a really nice guy. You know, he, he, maybe, maybe, maybe there could be something here. So we dated for about another two, three weeks before she broke it off again. And it wasn't until many years later that some old high school girls, who contacted me on Facebook, they said, oh, I always thought you were cute in high school. I'm like, oh, well, how come you never came up and said anything? They were like, that's not our job. I was like, what do you mean? It's like, it's the guy's job to ask out the girl. It's the guy's job to make the move. And I was like, really? Here, I just thought I was weird and must not have been that good looking because no girls were ever talking or hitting on me. Turns out the whole time, the ball was in my court and I had no, I, I was like just sitting there, wasn't, wasn't even playing with my racket. I was just kind of like, what am I supposed to do with this ball? <laughs> so I had no idea. And now I realize it's because I don't have those kind of sexual urges. And once you think about it, about how many decisions you made based on a girlfriend that you were dating or a boyfriend that you were interested in or somebody you found sexy on television or, you know, an activity, you know, why did you go to that party? Oh, because I wanted to hook up with Jenny, what's her face, right? Oh, well, why did you get married? Oh, because 
the sex was really good, you know, and now you're married to the worst roommate ever. And I just never had that urge driving my decisions. I was just kind of like all intellectual, for lack of a better term. One thing that I think people might think when, when you're saying this, if they haven't really taken time to think about it, mm -hmm. is they might not automatically decouple the sex drive from a drive for companionship. Correct. And so could you speak to that? Like, sure. even though you didn't have a sex drive, did you have a drive for companionship or, mm -hmm. or intimacy like that? Even though I wasn't driven by any kind of like carnal sexual urges, I still wanted to spend time with people. I, I'm very romantic. I, I, I get flowers for my girlfriend. I, I, I get nice little gifts for her and, and give them to her at opportune moments. My ex-wife, we were married for 18 years and she said I was not a bad husband. I just didn't want to have sex. You know, I mean, I, I, I did all the things and I was a good companion and I was a good partner and I was a good person. But on the checklist of what she needed, there was one big block that was missing. And you're right, people do mistake that. For instance, my ex-wife, she had marriage, sex, and love all braided together. And when we were starting to break up, and she was like, what's going on here? How come you don't want to have sex so much anymore? And I was like, well, I've never really been interested in sex. She's like, what do you get out of it? And I'm like, it doesn't hurt but it's nothing that I need. And she's like, okay, you love me. I said, yes, I care about you very deeply. And we're married. I said, yeah, legally, got the ring on her fingers, but you don't want to have sex. I said, no. She says, but you love me and we're married. And she just couldn't break those three things apart. And it dawned on me when I thought back to when we got together that Oh, you know what really clinched her to getting married? The first time we had sex. Hmm. We started out as, you know, we met, we hung out, we fooled around, had sex, and it was like, oh, where are we going to get a ring? When are we going to do it? When's, when's, the, when's the ceremony going to happen? And I always thought we rushed. It was like 10 months. But we were both in the military at the time, and she needed to be legally my wife in order to go with me to my next assignment. So it was kind of a marriage of convenience. But we real I realized that it was the sex for her that was the proposal. Because later, when we were separated but living together, she was my roommate, she finally went out on a date, and she had a one-night stand with the guy. She came back the next day and said, he's nice, you know, he's getting over a previous marriage, and he's got cancer, and he's going through some, some chemo, and, but he's a nice guy, you know, going to see him again. I said, okay. And they were together for about three weeks. One day she comes home from dinner and she's mm, mad. I'm like, what happened? So he says he doesn't want to get married again. I'm like, so? She's like, well, then how do I know he's not just getting the sex for free? And that's when it dawned on me that she had all three of those things all tied together. Just because this guy had sex with you on the first date, you think he loves you and wants to marry you? No. I know for a fact. You don't need to be in love or married to have sex. You don't need to have sex or be married to be in love. And you don't need to be in love or have sex to be married. All three of those things are completely separate. Wow. So, wow, thank you. Something that dawned on me, one of the ways that I interpret the world, and I've been paying attention to questions, 
related to the extent to which our personal story and understanding relate to society's expected, our cultural stories. Would you mind speaking to your perception of, at least in your experience, mm. your perception of what it feels like as an American? Mm -hmm. um, to, being American, is it expected that you couple those things together? Do you think our culture did that? Could you oh, speak yes. to that? <clears throat> so, <clears throat> I've often said that Americans and that our culture and that the media that we consume are very heteronormative and very two and a half kids. Um, the American dream is built around that. The nuclear family is built around that. You watch any romantic comedy and it ends with them either married or having kids in the credits. That is the expectation. That is what is normal. And that's what I bought into for a, you know, a lot of my childhood. I was the last Stillipec in my line, right? My, my dad and mother had, had me. There was my sister. She would be married and take another last name. My father's brother, um, he'd lost somebody very important to him when he was young and he just never loved again. So no children there. And my father's sister got married new last name, had her own kids. So as far as the Stillipec name was concerned, I was it. And very subtly, there was this pressure, you know, oh, you're gonna, what are you gonna name your kids, James? What, you know, da da da, you gonna carry on, you gonna, James Jr. or da da, you know? And, it's just, and you just thought that was normal. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll get up and I'll have kids and then you'll be a grandma and da da da, right? And when that didn't happen, you know, like 20 years old, 24 years old, still a virgin, finally met somebody, you know, gave that up, and then that relationship didn't work, and then met my, the woman who would be my wife. And again, I'm not giving her a lot of that, and she wasn't really in a hurry to have kids for her own reasons. So a couple of years are going by, and now mom is like, when the grandkids gonna come along, that's the way you're supposed to do it, because that's what mom and dad did as soon as they got married, pumped out three kids, two, right? All my grandparents, both my mom's parents and my dad's parents, had three kids. <laughs> they, they could have all married each other because there was two girls and a boy on this side and there was two boys and a girl on this side. So my dad and mom could have, were the oldest. They could have married. My father's brother could have married my mother's sister. And my father's sister could have married my mother's brother, <laughs> hypothetically. <clears throat> anyway, so... Getting married, having kids is extremely heteronormative in our society. It's expected. And when I wasn't doing it and didn't have this drive to do it, it started to cause a wedge with my mother and my family. They, I felt that they were pressuring us to, pressuring my, my wife to just be a baby maker so for their sake. Oh, because mom needs grandkids. And that's what mom was expecting because that's what her, grand, her mother wanted and it's what she gave her. So mom wanted to become the grandma. She wanted to become the matriarch. And it just wasn't anything that I was in the mood to give. You know, people would say, when are you guys gonna have kids? Oh, we're not ready to have kids. And what do they always say? Well, you're never ready. It's like, okay, we're not in the mood to have kids. And it just turns out, I love kids. You know, I mean, I, I think I would have been a great parent, but other things got in the way and um, it didn't happen. Do you think, so 
actually, I got two questions. The first is, what does it feel like having grown up in a heteronormative society? Mm-hmm. What is that personal experience like growing up in a heteronormative society and feeling like you're not heteronormative or you don't align with heteronormative values? Well, a lot of it has been in retrospect. These are things that I've only realized in the last couple of years. So I've had to like look back on my younger years, on my teenage years, and how different things that I did at the time affected my decisions and my upbringing, okay? But I can think back to actually at the time, here I am spending my weekends dressing up in women's clothes, right? Dressing up in my mom's clothes, going through my mom's closet, my sister's closet. And there wasn't a lot of media in the 90s that was supportive of cross-dressing or transgenders or anything like that. There was transsexual, and that meant you flew to Sweden, got the whole thing, and came back. And I never wanted that. I never felt the need to become a woman. And at the same time, here I am clearly wearing women's clothes, but I'm not getting any real sexual gratification out of it. And again, it's not like you can go to the library, can I see a book on cross-dressing, please? Right, there was very few movies, and most movies were, it was comedy. You had Bosom Buddies, Tom Hanks, and I forget the other guy, but that was a TV show about two guys dressing up like women to live in an apartment complex with their girlfriends. Um, there was Miss Doubtfire, right, with uh, Robin Williams. There was Birdcage, also with Robin Williams. Um, Tu Wong Fu with Love, Julie Newmar, uh, Patrick Swayze, and Wesley Snipes as drag queens. Wonderful movie, great sentiment, but still... You know, they they took one of the most masculine men they could find, Patrick Swayze, and put him in a dress. And he did a great job. I'm not saying that, right? Um, And then you've got um, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which was an Australian movie about a drag queen who suddenly realized he had a son that, you know, an ex-girlfriend had, you know, had a child and he didn't know. And he was trying to hide that drag queen side of his life from the boy, you think, oh, I can't, I can't let the boy be exposed to this. So he was embarrassed about it. But then they come together and everybody's happy, you know, in the end. But other than that, there weren't really a lot of examples to draw from, except RuPaul. Most trans, transgender, transsexual, cross-dressing people you saw were on like uh, Maury Povich or um, Ricky Lake or um, uh, what was the other guy? The, the daily talk shows, you know. There was no healthy, supportive place to turn to about these issues. So this is a couple of tweets that I made um, a couple of weeks ago. Some folks don't get how I can choose to look and dress like this but have no interest in having sex. I want to turn heads and drop jaws, but that's it. I'm for display purposes only. And a follow-up, I don't seduce. I tantalize and move on. And I think about the songs from my childhood, um, Baby's Got Her Blue Jeans On, or Sold, the Grundy County Auction. These are songs about how beautiful a woman is, how she's stopping traffic, or she's turning heads. And it's dawned on me in recent years that that's how I want to look. That's how I want to, that's the kind of effect I want to have on people. But it stops there. I don't need them to do anything to me. What do you think motivates your desire to 
tantalize. I think my desire to look this way and, and feel attractive comes from when I was younger, feeling so marginalized appearance-wise. I know I was average looking. I was average height, average voice, average appearance. I wasn't ugly by any stretch of the imagination, but because no one was hitting on me, it affected me emotionally that I was like, oh, maybe I'm not that good looking. You know, maybe it's my personality. Maybe there's something else wrong with me. So as I got older and started wanting to do this, I want to be the center of attention. I get my energy from that. That's uh, when I started cosplaying, dressing up as Zero Suit Samus or Dark Phoenix or Catwoman and going to a convention and people are stopping to get your photo taken with them. It's like you're a model. It's like you're a movie star. And that really worked for me. Now, if I'm in a big crowd of people, like at a dinner or something like that, uh, it's not, that's not my energy, right? Because I'm not, I can't be the center of attention in that situation. You've got your little table of six people and they're the ones you talk to and you get up and you mingle a little bit. That will wear me out. But if I'm in a convention and I know that I'm like a centerpiece, that really energizes me and keeps me focused and motivated. I can lose my energy in just a small table of those six people especially if one of those people is dominating the conversation because there's a type of person who has to talk rather than listen. As a journalist, I've learned to both listen and talk when appropriate to ask follow-up questions and stuff. And yes, I like talking about myself, but I've learned that not everybody wants to know about me. I'm, I'm not the expert. I used to hear people having a conversation in another part of the cubicle farm at work and they'd be talking about Star Wars and I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go inject myself into these people's conversation because they deserve my knowledge and my experience and my opinion. And that I didn't notice it at the time, but they, you know, they kind of like, they, they, ah, that's nice, James. Okay. And then years later, somebody finally said, dude, we don't need your opinion. You know, it's not about you. If two people are having a conversation, they're having a conversation. If they wanted you to be a part of it, they would have invited you over. You know, we don't like it when you inject yourself into conversation. And I was like, oh, so I realized that was rude. So I made a conscious effort to stop doing it. Wow. Do you, can you think of someone in your life who makes you, so one thing that I've experienced in my life, I've been in love a few times and it's my favorite feeling, but my favorite part of it is that all my needs for anything melt away and I don't even think about them. Have you ever, do you have anyone in your life or ever had a time in your life where you've had a relationship with someone in any capacity where you kind of forget about everything? You feel like you're just at peace you, and you don't even think about being energized or not energized. You're just safe, secure, and I would say satiated. Mm -hmm. I would say that I felt safe several times in my life. I mean, at home with just my mom, you know, after my sister had moved out, it's just the two of us. And that was always a safe space. She took care of me. I took care of her. I thanked her when I right before I left to join the Navy for raising me right and taking good care of me. Um, my first wife, we had a good partnership going on. We, we took care of each other. Um, we looked out for each other. We um, made sure that there wasn't any, there was no violence in the home. There was no you know, major issues. Other things happened eventually, but there was a time there where it was satisfactory, you know, not Excellent, but satisfactory, you know, I, as I like to say from the Incredibles, you know, Violet, when they asked her, how was school today, Violet? Nothing to report. 
you know, it wasn't bad, it wasn't good, it was just, it just was. Um, I've done really well on my own. You know, I can think of when I was, when I was single, before I met my, my uh, ex-wife, I was good. I went and did my job, I came home, played my video games, watched TV, it was good. You know, took care of myself. And then after the divorce, that got back into that life, you know, but that was exploring this new thing and I was doing cosplay and I was meeting new groups of people and I was kind of getting out of my safety bubble um, and doing things that I never thought I could do. You know, again, I think about going back to my 10 year old self and would I, would I recognize myself? You know, what would I tell myself? I don't think my 10 year old self would accept that I could live this way. I think he'd be very confused. He'd be like, what? You can't get some surgery, not all of it. Because that's, that's what they do on TV. They get the whole thing. you know. But now I'm in a very healthy relationship. We've both learned from previous relationships. Be honest from the get-go. I mean, you have to just come right out. Anytime you feel an emotion, if you feel slighted, if you feel disrespected, if you feel um, like they didn't get a joke, right? Or you came home with really good news and they immediately asked some other serious question without feeling happy for you. It's like, um, that's not what I needed from you right now. And that honesty has really brought us together. And uh, I wish everybody could have that. That's beautiful, I love that. I like that too. I really appreciate how you pointed to both the being there for things that aren't great, they're slights, but also being able to hold space to help their emotion expand. If it's good, they want that emotion to expand around them in all aspects. They want to grow and cultivate it and, and fully integrate it. And I love how you brought that up. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, okay. So thinking about that, one of the things um, that I picked up from what you're saying is that it sounds like you really prioritize or, or value achievement or excellence. Is that true? And... Where, if, if so, like, what's your relationship with achievement and excellence? Okay. I think I have a pretty healthy relationship with achievement. I've always been proud of my accomplishments. Almost too much. Again, people pointed out to me, they're like, you brag about yourself a lot. I'm like, am I bragging just to show off something that I did, especially as an example for how other people could learn from my accomplishment? And I think that that's kind of where the rub is people would rather learn from someone else's mistake than from someone else's accomplishment. If it's an accomplishment, they feel jealousy that they didn't get it themselves. They don't feel motivated to do the same thing. But if somebody else makes a mistake, they're like, oh, not gonna do that. And they feel better about themselves for avoiding what that other person did. What do you think American culture teaches us about how, to have a, about how we should have a relationship achievement either on like directly or indirectly I think American culture tries to teach us that anybody can be anything that anybody can achieve if you just put your nose at the grindstone and and work hard and you know rise above uh, lift yourself up by your bootstraps and there are plenty of examples of people who have done that people who grew up poor who designed something or made the effort to improve their their, their position and, and got up but when you really think about it I think the number of those people is pretty small and that most people just kind of like survive, right? And because society kind of puts these people on a pedestal, you could be this, 
these other people are just kind of left marginalized and it's all like, oh, when am I going to, when am I going to win the lottery? When am I going to have my big moment in the sun? Some people, the most important thing or the most, the thing they value is still like that high school football game that they, they ran that touchdown, you know, and here it is 40 years later and they're still talking about that because that was the, that was when they peaked and there's, they still have a good life. One thing I, I, I often say is when people, you get, you meet somebody and say, like, how was your weekend? And they say, oh, it was fine. Hung out. Nothing, nothing to report. And then they ask me, how was your weekend? I'm like, oh, I did this, 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 this. And I'm like, wow, you're really busy. I'm like, no, mostly just hanging around the house. And I think it's the journalism in me where I just, I turn everything into a story. I realize that everything is built. It's not just, I sat at home and did nothing. No, I sat at home. I, I organized some of my stuff. I had, a, I met two great new individuals and inter talked about my life. I got to show off my stuff, you know, and then I took some stuff to Goodwill and then I, you know, went through and did a little photo session with my old cosplays that I could sell them or give them to my friends. And then, you know, made myself a spaghetti dinner that I've been looking forward to all week. You know, so it's like, you gotta focus on those moments, on those achievements, because everything you do in your life is an achievement. I now understand what you're saying with the healthy understanding of achievement, because for you, you've learned how to see, you, you, you equate achievement with creating an intention and behaving in a way that can possibly bring it about. And so achievement to you is just the healthy, you're, you're equating with progress. And positivity. Yeah. And it, it makes so much sense because like you're talking about your day and it's really beautiful because I think about that all the time. That's been the tool that I've used as a lever to to help me have a good life is to learn how to look at the story of my life and be like, oh, wow, I today I, I got up and I, I love doing my planner because it's like setting myself up for my day in the right way. Do you ever write down things you've already done just for the sheer joy of checking them off? The thing, so actually... Didn't answer the question. <laughs> um, I actually have a different technique. Okay. Um, sometimes I'll write what I did, but instead of worrying about checking it off, um, I actually take time to focus on the value I was actualizing. Gotcha. So I do it, but it's more of, like I try to wake up at a certain time each day, in a certain way each day, in a, in a, to embrace that experience in a way that is aligned with connection to becoming more and more of a reliable person, a committed person to, to the people in my life. Mm -hmm. That's the part that drives me. Sure. Wow. There's a great um, video that I love showing people. Uh, it's called Learn, uh, Leading with Lollipops. Uh, it's got by a, a guy, Drew Dudley, and he, it was just a little seven-minute TED Talk that he did in Toronto, and he talks about lollipop moments. And he says that leadership is something that people think has to be given to them, right? It's, it's too proud to call yourself a leader. Oh, no, no, no. Somebody has to assign me the role of being a leader. I can't just say I'm a leader. And he talks about an ish, a story where a woman came up to him in college and said, you're a very important person in my life. You kept, you kept me from quitting college on the first day of school, and I will always remember you. And that was four years ago, and I'll never forget it. He does not remember that moment. And it dawned on him that maybe the most important effect you had on somebody's life is something you don't even remember.
and he asks the audience, does anybody have a lollipop moment? Does anybody have a moment where somebody, complete stranger or a family member, said or did something for you that totally changed your perspective on life or that day? You know, you were on the bus going for a job interview and you didn't think you were going to get it, but then randomly somebody said, hey, you look really good today. And that gave you the confidence to, to take you on. Think about how many of those moments we've had in our life. And then did you ever tell the person what they did for you? And the audience is like, yeah, I've got a lollipop moment, but no, I never told the person that they did it for me. It's because they haven't you know, given it back. I had an experience, um, an old, a girl that I knew in high school. That's all, I just, I, she was a, another girl in high school, Allison, barely remember her. We, we were classmates, you know, and there had been, she, we contact, she contacted me on Facebook, we were chatting. And she said, I, I wanna say, there was one time in high school that you just stopped and complimented my hair. And I, I really, really appreciated that. I said, and I, vague, I have a vague memory of it. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I remember that. I was, your hair looked good. She goes, it was a wig. I had leukemia at that time. I was going through chemo. And I was so worried that the wig wasn't going to be accepted that people would pick on me and you were just so I, she's saying I was so genuine in my compliment about her hair with no indication that it was a wig and that really did something for her and that's 30 years she's been holding on to that memory and she just finally thanked me I had a recruit in boot camp um, when I was a drill instructor I was, I was a journalist in the military and I had shot interviews I had done commercials I'd done radio shows and I had this, I had videos of like my, my TV, my news products. And when I was a drill instructor, just to kind of kill time, I would throw them in the cassette tape and I'd say, hey guys, this is what, this is what I used to do in the Navy. And this is what the Navy's going to look like. You know, here's military working dogs. Here's, uh, you know, army ships that actually move supplies and things like that. And years go by and I'm getting ready to retire. And I get a Facebook request from a former sailor. And the name looked familiar. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I clicked on it. And he sends me a text. He says, you probably don't remember me, but I was one of your recruits eight years ago. And I had no idea what I wanted to be in the Navy until you put in a videotape and showed me that you could be a journalist in the military. He became a journalist in the military for four or five years, got out, went back to college, got his master's degree in communication. And now he's the head of multimedia at some news agency in New York. I literally lit the match of this kid's entire career didn't even know it. So we all have those lollipop moments and learning about those lollipop moments and how you've affected people can really affect you and make you feel worthy. And we need more of that in our lives. I think that's really beautiful. What do you think American culture says about, you mentioned the idea of like bragging about yourself. Mm -hmm. What do you think American culture teaches us? Like when we see that as a cultural story, what do you think American culture says about publicly celebrating our accomplishments? When it comes to celebrating our own accomplishments, I think our society is kind of giving us mixed messages. You think about movies and how you got your protagonist, this rags to riches story, and you know he, he builds himself up and then he accomplishes the thing, he gets the girl or he gets the job, and we're so proud of him because you know, we came along that journey with him. But then at the same time, you could have a movie that introduces a character who's already accomplished and rich, and they're portrayed as the villain. Um, 
I'm just gonna use this one as the Karate Kid. There is a YouTube video where somebody actually portrays Daniel as the aggressor and um, Johnny as just defending himself and protecting his girlfriend. And when you go back and watch the movie again, you're like, Daniel did throw the first punch. And at the end of the movie, Daniel kicked him in the face, which was an illegal kick. But it was just kind of, it was yada yada over for the sake of the movie, for the sake of the moment. And that's why Cobra Kai is so cool because it's gone back and revisited a lot of those tropes. It'd be like, yeah, it was an illegal kick. It's like, yeah, well, referee didn't call it because you're the bad guy, you know? So anyway, in that respect, I think that as you're telling stories, it's the way that people are portrayed in stories that their accomplishments can be seen as a bad thing. Oh, he accomplished all this stuff and you need to be jealous of him. Or, oh, look how this person built themselves up and we need to cherish them. So that leaves young kids where it's like, well, am I, do I be proud of the, the A that I got or do I not want to rub it in anybody's face? You know. And then we also adhere ourselves to other people's accomplishments, like sports teams. Yeah, my Ravens are the best. It's like, yeah, but you're not on the team. You know, I, I had this whole thing I wanted to get into once about sports teams. It's like, you could, what is it that makes people adhere to a sports team so vehemently when they have no control over, over the team at all, but they will defend that team? Well, you know, I could show somebody that your sports team has the worst record. You have the worst coach, numerically, logically. Your quarterback has the, has the worst, fewest touchdowns. And yet you still go for them because why? And the number of reasons could be, oh my, because my dad, because they're my hometown, because I like their colors. You know, people glom onto this reason and they, people pick a reason to bond with something and they, they grip on with both hands so tight that if they let go, they think they're gonna lose some of themselves. If they were willing to accept that their team was the worst, they would lose part of their own identity. Like, have you ever seen In Inside Out, Pixar movie? I always love using that example of the little personality islands. And it's like, you're asking these people to crush one of their islands just for the sake of logic. So one thing that struck me with what you said, thank you, because I think you, that's very well articulated and it also fascinates me because one thing that you pointed to is that American culture, at least in the area of talking about our achievement, it creates ambivalence. And what's really cool is in, psycho in the psychology world, we're finding that a large ambivalence breeds polarization. Mm -hmm. Basic psychology, cognitive dissonance, if you're not sure what to think, you double down and you're actually more intense about whatever you think. And we're finding this like crazy. Yeah. So our, I mean, in that area, you just illustrated that our culture breeds ambivalence, not a clear idea of how to do it. And therefore, whatever people pick, they're actually more married to and it's more dangerous because they don't want to go back to that ambivalence. I remember a comedian wow. named Rick Reynolds and he talked about a thing called dickhead momentum. And it's like where you're having an argument, but it slowly dawns on you that you're wrong. It's like, you know, you're yelling at your wife, honey, I told you to get half a dozen eggs and look, you only got six. This place is a mess. You know, it's, you don't 
accept it. You, like you said, you double down, right? You don't, you, you have this anger all built up and you can't just stop it and apologize. You, so you, you, you pivot and you start putting it in other places. And when it comes to our achievements and our ambivalence, we, we love seeing movie stars getting a coffee, right? Wearing, you know, dressed down sweatpants or whatever, you know, without their makeup on so we can make fun of them, you know? It's like, it's like the song um, Dirty Laundry. You know, kick them when they're up, kick them when they're down. Kick them when they're up, kick them all around. We're, we're taught to root for the underdog, right? You know, and then beat down the, the, the person who's winning. If you're not going to cherish your hero, it's just as much fun to knock them down. So when I, when I, I don't, I'm not a big sports person, but whenever I watch a team, I always just root for whoever's losing. And people actually get that. They're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go back. So we, we talked about at the beginning of the chapter, it was like, good things are on their way. Yes. We talked about a transition point mm -hmm. where you got to write a story. Became creative. Became creative. Where do you think the next kind of chapter begins? You embrace the creativity, you embrace the cross-dressing, and you start to work with that. What would you say the next event is that would really spark the next big transition in your life? After growing up in Alaska, after high school, the next big turn point in my life was joining the military. Uh, all through high school, you know, during the height of the Cold War, uh, you know, in the fall of the Berlin Wall, and I was of the opinion that we're going to be at peace by the end of this century, so what do we need a military for? You know, my dad had been in the military, both my grandfathers had retired from the military. Um, I just didn't really see the point. And dad had sent me to the, to the recruiter right after high school, and the army recruiter was way too eager to get somebody as smart as me into the army. And then the marine recruiter was already processing a high school classmate of mine who I barely knew. He's like, oh, if you guys join together, he gets promoted. I'm like, I don't want that. And ironically, there wasn't a Navy recruiter in my hometown at the time. So I went to work at JCPenney's and I sold shoes and I started going to college and did okay in college, but wasn't enjoying it. So I had to tell my dad, dad, I don't want to go to college anymore. He's like, I don't care. That was a lollipop moment for me. It was like, dad wants me to do whatever I want. I thought dad wanted this, this, this. Okay. So wasn't sure what to do. And I got a letter in the mail when I was uh, 19. And it's like, do you want to know more about the Navy? And dad had been in the Navy and he had good things to say about it. So I said, okay, you know, give me some more information about nuclear engineering or electronics engineering, whatever. And I sent the letter back and the recruiter was in Anchorage, which is 300 miles south of Fairbanks. It's the next nearest city. So Fairbanks being very isolated. And they said, well, hey, you come on down, you'll take this little test. We'll put you up in a hotel for the weekend, you know? We'll see what you're, uh, what you're capable of doing in the Navy and try to find a fit for you. And I said, okay, free weekend in Anchorage. And all I gotta do is take a test. So I flew down to Anchorage and, you know, took their little test and I scored like a 98%. And they're like, you can do anything. Here's the list of jobs, pick one. And I was like, well, what, what, what do you got in communications? I'm like, oh, well, we have a thing called a fire control technician. I said, what do they do? So well, they are the ones who like work the guns and fire the missiles. I said, I don't want to fire missiles. I don't want to talk to missiles. I want to talk to people. I said, oh, we have an electronics technician. So what do they do? I said, oh, they work on electronics equipment. They make sure that the wires are working and that the radio is active. And I said, mm. I imagine uh, the guy from Down Periscope 
you know, with holding the two wires together, you know, and, and getting, you know, little char marks on his, on his clothes. And then he said, well, how about journalism? And I said, journalism? There's journalists in the military? And he said, yeah. He shows me this sheet and it's like, oh, be a journalist. You can be in, on the radio and you can shoot video and you can take photos and you can interview people. And I had never done anything like that in high school. I had my creative writing club and had all my creative writing and my, and my role playing, but I had avoided like newspaper stuff because I thought, oh, that's the truth. Facts are boring. But then I read this little write-up and it says requirements to be a journalist in the military. Good physical appearance. Good speaking voice. Ability to work alone. Creativity. And that really got me because I was like, wait, you have to be creative to be a journalist? Never dawned on me. I thought it was, oh, you take the facts, you put them in order, and that's boring, right? After having been a journalist for 20 years and having been a broadcast journalist instructor for four years, I can tell you that you have to be very creative to make the truth sound interesting. So joining the military on that it was a whole new path. I had never been, I'd been out of Alaska with my dad or my mother, uh, but not for any long extended period of time. I'd never been any further uh, east than Chicago to visit family. So now here I am on my own at boot camp, getting yelled at, doing push-ups, uh, you know, gaining this new sense of community and uh, discipline, right? I literally watched the muscles in my arm develop because I had really strong thumbs from playing video games, but like doing push-ups actually like developed the muscles. And then getting this sense of leadership. They wanted to put me in charge of like 10 recruits. And I said, eh, I've seen Full Metal Jacket. I don't know what happens when you're in charge of people. But then I saw the people who were in charge sucked. So I was like, eh, okay, I'll do it. And as soon as I took the job, yep, I got made to do push-ups because of something that everybody else did wrong. But I owned it. And that was where I first got my love of teaching. I realized that I had a, an ability to lead, to make the decision that other people didn't want to make. You know, that other people are like, should we go left or should we go right? I don't know. I'd be like, let's go left. We'll figure it out. You know, you can't change direction if you're not moving. You know, if you're in a car and it's just sitting there, you can turn the wheels, but you're not actually going anywhere. You have to be actively moving in order to change direction. And again, I thought I'd do my six years you know, get, learn how to be a journalist and everything like that. And then I go back to my hometown and get a job at the radio station and go from there. But then I met somebody and I was interested in her and she transferred to Iceland. So I said, oh, I could re-up and go to Iceland with you. She said, okay, go for it. So I did. And then she dumped me. But that's where I met my ex-wife. And we were married 10 months later, live on TV and radio in the radio studio in Iceland, broadcasting the entire base. And then, uh, then I was able to go back and become a drill instructor myself after having had such a good time in boot camp and learning that leadership and, you know, training new people. And the military just gave me so much community and so much purpose, you know. It gave me a place to belong. And it wasn't until years later that I would realize that a lot of transgender and gay people kind of like hide in the military because of its hyper-masculinity. They will take that hoorah, er, let's shoot things kind of mentality to be like, see, I'm not really gay, I'm not really trans. I mean, there's been Navy SEALs, decorated Navy SEALs, who got out of the military, you know, and then transitioned because they were denying their true self the entire time. 
I think I don't think I would have gotten here if it hadn't been for that journey. And again, because I consider myself transgender light, I'm not. What I mean by that, I have transgender friends who can't shower with the lights on because their body disgusts them so bad, who loathe waking up in the morning to their the body before they can dress it up to look the way they want to look. And I never had it that bad. I never had that much dysmorphia that it affected me emotionally. I just liked the way I looked. It wasn't until I started being able to wear my breast forms on a regular basis after retiring. And I was going to work and I said, I can show up sometimes in a dress and sometimes in, in pants. And they were like, sure, whatever you want to do. That was so supportive of a, of a government agency to allow me to do that. And then I just realized I didn't want to take these off. So I got them installed. <laughs> but in a long, you know, long story short, the next chapter was the military. <laughs> wow. That's really beautiful to the, the empathy that you're able to draw out of me there. I appreciate that because like I've had low level body dysmorphia, but to think about like, oh my gosh, you know, I've, I've had that built into me. I'm not the biggest guy. I'm smaller. And so, oh, I want love and women will never love me because of a certain, you know, and it's painful. And every man I've ever talked to in an honest conversation and, and every woman, every person I've ever talked to can empathize with a level of dysmorphia. But the level of, I can't shower with the lights on, that's intense. That's what transgender people go through all the time. And that's what most people don't want to realize. You know, it's like, you think about the way your favorite hat makes you feel or your favorite pair of jeans, right? Or when you get your beard trimmed, you just, you feel like a hundred bucks. For some people that is growing their hair out or getting things removed or getting things added, male and female. I have a military friend, uh, Bo, who met them and they were presenting feminine and now they're transitioning to masculine and they're on hormones now and living their best life with their husband. And it's just so wonderful to know that they're um, living their best life and they've, what I call, answered their call to authenticity, which isn't mine. I took that from, I can't remember who, who I got that from, but it's a, it's a common phrase in the community. That's really helpful. And I appreciate it because I've had lots of conversations trying to understand this experience because, and, and I've seen it go like one of three ways in my experience. Sometimes the answer is, well, the, a person who's trying to convey an experience that they, that other people don't readily understand, mm -hmm. there's a pain mm -hmm. because they're like, I'm, I'm kind of tired of this being something I have to make people understand. And I get that. That seems so reasonable because it's like, I, you don't have to explain to people why you're struggling after a heteronormative breakup. You don't have to explain to people why you're struggling. And so it's like, I understand that. And it's hard. So I, let, me, let me give you a couple of analogies that I've made. Number one, when it comes to people wanting to change their name, okay? Oh, I knew him as John. Why should I now have to call him Joni, right? I, I, I knew, known 10 years as John. So I think that's selfish of him. Okay. Imagine you met a woman. And when you first met her, she was married 
And so she's Mrs. Jones. And you knew her for five years as Mrs. Jones. And then she gets divorced and you find out that it was a toxic relationship, that every day he was beating her or he was being harmful to her. And now they have divorced. She has taken back her maiden name and now she's Ms. Smith. Well, you knew her as Mrs. Jones. That's not selfish. That's her avoiding something that was very toxic and dangerous to her life. And it's the same thing with people who want to transition. They have lived 10, 20, 30, 40 years pretending to fit in, pretending to be this thing that society expected them to be. And some of them, when they finally call, answer their call to authenticity, and when people don't accept that, they get bitter. They get angry. You see a lot of transgender folks on, on the media who are like, it's ma'am, you know, and because they are sick of how they were treated before it, you know, that they had to pretend all that time. And now they're here, they are trying to live their true life and society doesn't want to accept it. So hmm. they get mad. This reminded me, so I hear people often say in these conversations, um, well, what about people who their reason they're upset is not because the what's going on with their body it's something else but they think it's that right mm -hmm. and so that's a common thing that people will point to and i've heard psychologists point to this to say mm -hmm. sometimes when you're struggling so much mentally you look for something you land on it and i think that's a really insensitive thing to say to somebody who's going through it and at the same time it's a question that the public has to have an answer to if we're going to accept. Mm -hmm. They need to readily have an answer to that. And if you're comfortable, do you have any thoughts on that kind of question, how to wrestle with that question? I think that people in general, not just Americans, but people in general, like things being in little boxes. They like things being understandable. They want to look at a person and say, they're black. They want to look at a person and say they're a woman. They want to look at a person and say they're a salesman. They like things being very clearly delineated. And with transgender people, and even non-gender conforming people, whether they're trans or just gay or uh, uh, non-binary, gender fluid, whatever, again, it's one of those islands that we're asking them to crush and say, no, your island is wrong. And it's not that it's wrong, it's just you're comfortable in your island, but you need to respect other people's islands, that they are rebuilding their island to fit their own self-awareness. Um, so people also then don't like having that, that box questioned, right? They are so fanatic in their opinion that they have to be right. And people like being right. When you solve a puzzle, you get a little shot of endorphin, right? When you spot a potato chip that looks like Abraham Lincoln, you get a little jolt, right? Being rights and achievement. Being rights and achievement. People like getting achievements, right? So when you look at a transgender person and you can't figure out where they go, it immediately causes you to be not right. And I think that's what confuses people. They don't see them as a person, they see them as a puzzle that they can't solve. It's not your puzzle to solve. Stop trying. I think that's such a good point. Um, and at the same time, 
from a, like a social psychologist perspective, I think one thing that underlies why we put people in boxes is to make sure that we're safe. Oh, it all comes back to uh, fight versus flight, basic instinct. We had the human brain has perverted fight or flight. Things that are familiar go towards. Things that are unfamiliar move away from. Things that are familiar are good. Things that are unfamiliar are bad. Anything that confuses someone is regarded as bad and they turn away from it rather than trying to figure it out. I, with what you're saying, I think that's so true. And there are times where all of a sudden we look at something that's unfamiliar, but expect good. And that's where actually in our American Discovery Tour program, we're looking at curiosity as being that I don't know what that is, but I expect there's good that can come from it, mm -hmm. so I can approach. And I'm wondering if, because I'm looking for how do we help people readily stop trying to under, need to understand it or, or keep the boxes and shift to, oh, okay, that's something that I don't completely understand. And I'm going to learn to understand it to the extent that it will help the people in my community, that it'll help you know, even me to be better of understanding. Well, that's why I think your stories are the best way because what you're doing is you're creating relatable content that other people can connect with. There's got to be something about me that somebody who doesn't understand this part of me, but they do understand me as a gamer, or they do understand me as an Alaskan, or they do understand me as a military veteran, and use that as a bridge to learning and understanding the other part. And it's beautiful because that's so beautifully said and it's so true because honestly, I remember a time where I had prejudice against anything that wasn't heteronormative. Mm -hmm. And that prejudice stemmed from a belief system that told me I needed to have that prejudice to understand what it meant to be a good person. Mm. Now, that prejudice didn't lead to hate. It didn't lead to anger. It led to empathy. And so it was a benevolent prejudice mm -hmm. where it's like, I know what good is and this person's been led astray or grew up astray, but that's still prejudice. And I'm still feeling that you're better than them and you need to fix them. Actually, no, I, I, that's not accurate. Okay. It was feeling, and I think the reason because that's not accurate is why I was able to get through it. It was, I don't know, I, I, I'm not good, mm -hmm. I'm bad. We're all bad, mm -hmm. but good exists. Mm -hmm. And the way to become better is to align with good. So I saw it as this is an alignment that will create bad for them and other people. I'm trying to help people know where to align with good. The arrogance there is that I didn't have enough perspective to know there's multiple forms of good. Oh yeah, agree. And as I and because it was about because it wasn't about being better than them, mm -hmm. I think I got lucky because I looked for what is really good. I questioned that box, right. and that's all I want to share with people is it's okay to question those boxes, because what you'll find when you do, there's a lot of boxes that all align with good. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, hmm. I think of when uh, we were watching The Wire. I'd never seen The Wire. My girlfriend, when when I moved to Baltimore, she's like, "You got to watch The Wire." And as a storyteller, as a writer, as a creator, I can see the threads of narrative in movies. 
I can figure out the plot line before other people do. I know who the bad guy is. I can, I can see those subtle hints where the camera lingers just a little bit too long on that woman. It's like, oh, she's important, right? Because I've seen enough media that I know how that works. And what I loved about The Wire is it portrayed even the drug dealers as noble and honorable and doing what they thought was right for themselves and their families, right? And then it could portray the cops as bad and, you know, um, poor role models for their kids and stuff like that. You know, again, doing what they think is right, but definitely blurring the lines between right and wrong, black and white, um, benevolence and uh, hatred. Okay, circling back, I wanna just recap something here, right? So we've walked through, you have a very interesting and also relatable life. And so what I'd say with that is you went to Alaska, at least from my perception, you went, you grew up in Alaska, a really tough life that not a lot of people can understand experientially, but a lot of people can understand that thinking about the story. We've all seen a story of people who had to grow up under harsh conditions. And actually a lot of people have different types of harsh conditions, not necessarily from nature, but you know, True. economically stuff like that. I'm learning that from my students in the inner city every day. They've seen more combat than I ever did in the military. I think that's perfect because the other things I wanted to t just bring out, right? So you had this create creative that unlocked for you. You merge that creative into what seems like the most orderly institution in the military, which I have some, you know, friends in the military and working with some people related to the military. And it turns out they prioritize creativity. That's actually what they care about the most. They care about training creativity because creativity leads to innovative solutions. It's true. But you learned that and then brought that, which is amazing. And then the next kind of stage of your life that we haven't talked on as much is something you've been doing now, right? Which is teaching. So you could tell us a little bit about your life as a teacher, how you came to that. Well, it was actually becoming a drill instructor that really taught me to be a teacher first because I actually went to school to be to learn how to teach. That was like the first step. It was like, okay, we're going to give you three weeks of what does it mean to put together a lesson plan? What does it mean to stand up in front of a, um, a, a group of people and teach them something? And you know, what are the, the steps of the lesson and all these types of things? And I found I really enjoyed that. And I thought back to other things in my life where I had taught somebody something, whether it was a, a junior personnel who I taught how to use a camera or uh, a recruit, uh, well, not, not at that point, but a, a friend who I taught to do something, whether it was clearing the snow off of a car or folding their clothes or it taught people a different method. And so I really enjoyed that. And then becoming a drill instructor and just having 80 recruits, just like your beck and call, who will just like listen to you and do what you say. And then by the end of those eight weeks, they have transformed, you know, they've gone from the caterpillar into the, the butterfly of, of sailorhood and to see the looks on their parents' faces, you know, to see the light bulbs going off in their eyes when they figure something out and then to hear them repeat back knowledge you imparted on them, whether it was actual important knowledge or just some stupid joke that you told and then to hear them repeat it always felt good. Like when we would do exercises and there were some stretches that you would do like your left side, right? And we'd go stretch, 10, 9, 8, 6, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And I'd say switch. And they would have to switch to the other side. And they'd go, ah, symmetry, which was something I told them to say. And I just, 
always loved that, you know. And so being a drill instructor gave me the first taste of real teaching. And uh, after I left, uh, went back to broadcasting, which was fine. And I was a training instructor. And then I was coming up to retirement. I was like, oh, maybe I could become a high school teacher or something like that. It was Troops to Teachers. It was a whole program. The trouble with Troops to Teachers is that it's not a program so much as a set of guidelines. It's like, oh, we'll pay to give you to help you get the, the certificates that you need in whatever state or district you want to go to. But they're all different. You have to know exactly where you want to live and figure out what their guidelines are, and then they will help you get those gui- meet those guidelines. Well, I didn't know where I was going to settle. I didn't know if I was going to stay in Maryland, go back to Alaska, somewhere else. Thought about moving out west, maybe to California or Colorado, Nevada. I don't know. So as I was considering that, and then right after I retired, I got a job back in the same building that I had been working at in the military. Now I'm a civilian. And I did that for a while, and then I got a job at my old school for military broadcast journalism, the Defense Information School, which was right across the street. So I'm still living on base, I'm still dealing with military people, and I'm teaching the job that I did, which I love, and just had so much fun, had a great time. Did that for four years. At the same time, I'm going through my divorce, I'm going through my transition, the students get it. I would introduce myself as Mix. Still a peck, you know, instead of Miss or Ms. or Mr., it's Mix, MX, period. It's a gender-neutral honorific. And they got it. They're like, hey, sometimes sir, sometimes ma'am, you should know the difference and use whatever pronoun falls out of your face, you're not going to hurt my feelings. And that really enlightened a lot of people. I had a, a student come up to me right away and say, Mix, still a peck, how do you know every day whether you want to be male or female? I said, well, it depends on how late I sleep in, whether or not I can do my hair and makeup. <laughs> um... But that was a joke. And uh, I said, well, I don't. And it, that made me realize that I'm not sometimes man, sometimes woman. I'm always somewhere right in the middle in that non-binary 50-50 space. I said, sometimes James, sometimes Jasmine, always Jay. So teaching them really enjoyed it. And then uh, COVID happened and I had a job opportunity um, that I was going to go for. And I quit my job at Dinfos and got ready for the new job opportunity, but because of COVID, that job suddenly evaporated. They said, oh, sorry, COVID makes it, we had to cancel. So now I'm like, oh, I can't just go back and beg for my old job back. So I turned back to the high school thing. And luckily there was a program in Baltimore called the Teaching Residency Program. And they would teach us a little bit, you know, how to be a teacher, much like what I learned as a drill instructor, how to put together a lesson plan, how to, you know, the methods of learning, how people, some people learn by doing. Some people learn by watching. Some people learn by reading. People learn different levels. So I went through that whole program, and it was a guaranteed position at a high school for three years in Baltimore City. And uh, they assigned me to a school, Reach Partnership uh, High School, and I became an English teacher for ninth and 10th grade for my first year. And that was deep into the pool on day one because no prep. I had not taught any actual students. We had taught, because of COVID, we had taught ourselves online, the other adults, kind of pretended to be students. But once you have an actual room full of 15 year olds who don't give two craps about you or where you're from or that you were in the military or that you've been on an aircraft carrier in the middle of the Persian Gulf and all they see is a guy with boobs, (laughs) it's a completely humbling experience. Um, But in the end, you had students who would tell other people like counselors or other teachers, they would get back to me and says, they said they never met anybody like you, anybody who was living 
your truth out loud like that. Never seen a non-binary person, never met a non-binary person, um, never met somebody who had top surgery but not bottom surgery, presents completely feminine but speaks with a male voice, masculine voice, and it just blew their mind. One big lesson that I learned about being a teacher is that you can be a window or you can be a mirror. A window shows people things that they're not familiar with, new experiences, new things that they can look at. And a mirror reflects back what they already know about themselves to help them understand themselves. And I think I'm a pretty big window. I love that. So given the pandemic, hmm. some people would say that our nation's a lot more divided. And I'm curious of your thoughts. Do you feel like our nation's divided? Um, and what do you think might be at the heart of that? I think that our nation is at a major turning point. We have to decide as a culture, do we want to live for every, everyone? Do we want to you know, be a, a collective society that helps one another? Or do we just want to be like in it for ourselves? I think most people are inherently one of two things. They're either selfish, they do things, what, what am I, what, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? Or they are selfless, meaning, oh, let me help you with that. You know, for no reward or anything like that, just because it's the right thing to do or it makes them feel good inside. And those two are very hard to, you know, get along with each other, you know? Mm -hmm. When you think about it, you can see the selfish people who just do things. You know, sure, they'll come over and paint your house, but you gotta pay them, right? Mm -hmm. Or, yeah, they'll, they'll look after your kids, but they're gonna get dinner, right? You know, those are the selfish people. You know, the people who, they go to work, to make money because they want things, right? As opposed to the people who go to work because the job fulfills them and they enjoy it. I tell my students every day that I'm getting paid, I'm retired, I get paid for breathing. I have all my medical taken care of, I have my life insurance taken care of. I don't make a lot of money as a retired military person, but it's still a chunk of change every month. But I choose to work because I think that they can benefit from my knowledge and experience much more than I can benefit from playing video games all day. I don't feel that it was the pandemic that divided us. I think that those divisions were already kind of laying in wait and that the pandemic merely was the fertilizer. It put people in their houses so that the only way they could communicate was via the internet. And the internet's always been there helping people find communities that they could glom onto and that they could relate to. I found a writing community, I found a transgender community, I found video game communities and role-playing communities. So we talk about the division. I'm really curious, you mentioned that people tend, what I heard from what you said, is that people tend to operate either from a selfish standpoint mm -hmm. or a selfless standpoint. Mm -hmm. What I heard when you said that, and as you elaborated on that, was that people are motivated for a economic gain or for meaning making. Mm -hmm. And so there's a self benefit to each of these, mm -hmm. but the type of benefit really matters. Do you think that everybody, just like gender, how there's some, there's a spectrum of male, there's a spectrum of female, that maybe we all have, that parallel could be drawn here, we all have a level of selfish and a level of selfless? And Oh, agreed. Um, I'm not saying that you're either entirely selfish or entirely selfless. Everything is shades of gray. 
everybody, even a selfless person, has to be a little bit selfish at times because if you were entirely selfless, always doing things for other people, helping somebody move their couch and then helping somebody paint their house and then giving somebody else money to help with their divorce and then taking care of somebody else's kid, you would have no time left for yourself. You would have no time to recharge. So yes, you have to find those times to say, no, I'm taking today for myself. Now, is that a little bit selfish? Yes, but it, it means that you can be re recharged and energized to help other people later. So there are shades of gray. Um, I think, yes, everybody has a one, one to 100% selfish, one to 100% selfless. Some people can be 50-50, you know, for the most part, or even sometimes they're selfish straight up entirely. Sometimes they're selfless straight up entirely. Could be conditional. With certain people, they're selfless. With certain um, holidays, they're selfish. You know, it, it everything can fluctuate. Do you think the pandemic moved anybody's meters like that experience moved it and just curious just thinking about that was if the pandemic was a cause for moving any of those i think the pandemic helped us really look at ourselves and what we want out of our lives and what's important to us uh, i saw a great tweet once where it was like somebody said before the pandemic i always said that i would clean house when i had the time now i realize that wasn't the reason and i was much the same way um, even though i was still teaching during the pandemic we were teaching mostly from home and uh, we'd go into school like maybe twice a week to like monitor the students while, uh, while the teacher was at home teaching virtually, right? So we'd kind of alternate back and forth. So I got a lot of time at home and I loved it because I could do my laundry while I was teaching, right? I could use my own restroom or change my shoes, you know, make my own lunch and it was, it was great. And I think that's what a lot of people realize is they could get just as much done from home. They can be just as effective instead of sitting in a cubicle for eight hours, right? And it helped people to focus, find what hobby they really wanted to focus on. And I realized that of all of my hobbies, if I had nothing better to do, if I'm just sitting on my butt with nothing to do, what would I do if I had all the time? I would play Dungeons and Dragons. I would be a model and take, have pictures taken of me, i.e. slash cosplayer. Um, and I would teach. And that's just, I think it really gave people a chance to, some people a chance to really look at themselves and figure out what they really wanted uh, to do with their life. And I think it caused a lot of shifts. I think it caused a lot of changes in jobs, a, cha a lot of changes in relationships. People realized that, sure, it was, our relationship was great when I was out of the house for eight hours a day. But once we had to spend all that time together, they realized they didn't have enough in common. I'd just ask this, do you think, what do you think would have to happen for America to become a, a better place for everyone. So during the pandemic, a buddy of mine, or like right before the pandemic, a buddy of mine actually asked, what do you think is gonna to have to happen to our country for us to all like kind of come together? Uh, because before the pandemic, we had Trump and he was causing a lot of division and he was, he was allowing those liars and jerks to be vocal about their opinions and feel justified because, oh, there's other people who feel this way too. And he said, what do you think it's going to take for our, our country to come together? And I said, I think it's going to have to take some major life-threatening event like a pandemic, like an alien invasion, like uh, a meteorite, you know, some type of massive situation where, again, it becomes everybody versus nature.
where we have no choice but to band with the person next to us, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of how they were raised, regardless of what's in their underwear. If we don't hold hands right now, we're both gonna die. And it take, it's gonna take that type of situation to really get everybody on the same page. Wow. Like war. Adjust Unfortunately. War. Yeah, unfortunately, that's what I thought of because all the history I've studied a just war where people feel all feel But that's the problem. I don't I don't think that another world war is really in the cards. I don't want that <laughs> I don't want it, but I don't think it's in the cards because I think We've already got this kind of globalization. It's like everybody is in everybody else's pockets It's like oh the European Union can't just cut off all their ties to Russia because of this because of what they're doing to Ukraine because there are so many economic and supply lines that are already connected. It's like, you can't just, you know, 50, 60 years ago, you could do that because every country was almost self-sufficient or like work with its nearby neighbors. Now you have to be in touch with every country in the world in order just for our current society to work, whether it's global communications, GPS, uh, or anything. I mean, have you ever, ever do you know about the, the cheeseburger? The cheeseburger is a global, modern creation. A guy tried to make a cheeseburger from scratch. And when I say from scratch, grow the wheat, milk the cow, make the cheese, grind up the meat, grow the lettuce, grow a tomato, all at the same time, all at the perfect time so that he could have a cheeseburger at the end. And the thing was, it would have taken over a year and a half because it takes three cows to make a cheeseburger. Because you need one cow, you need a bull to impregnate that cow because the cow has to be pregnant to give milk. So then you end up with a baby cow, at the very least. So you've got the milk, you got three cows, you gotta grind up one of them. <laughs> and then just the growing seasons of lettuce and tomatoes and, uh, and wheat and all that type of stuff, they just don't align. You can't do them all in the same place at the same time. The only reason we have the ability to make a cheeseburger at any time is because there's wheat growing somewhere in the northern hemisphere at the same time the tomatoes are growing in the southern hemisphere and vice versa throughout the entire year. Wow. I love it. The last thing I'd ask you is um, what is a core value that you aspire to live your life by? So in the military, we have core values and the Navy's core values are honor, courage, and commitment. And they teach us how they overlap and intersect with each other. It's a Venn diagram that are always kind of like working together. And in my life, the core value that I try to ascribe to the most is honesty. Because I feel that no matter how good it feels to lie, how much fun it is to fool somebody, even for a short time or even a long period of time, the truth is always so much easier to remember.